The following program is sponsored by Friends of Life Outreach International. I don't think I really understood my own need for grace. I mean, it made sense to me that if you engage in sexual sin or you drank like a fish or stuffed things up your nose other than a Kleenex, then of course you needed grace. But I was just a scared little good girl. Why did I need grace? Coming up on Life Today, Bible teacher and author Sheila Walsh helps us understand that grace is our universal need before God, no matter your story. Hello, I'm Sheila Walsh. Welcome to Wednesdays in the Word. Today we're talking about something that is very, very dear to my heart, and that is the grace of God. Grace has been described in all sorts of ways. Really, it's God's unmerited favor. In other words, you and I did not do one thing to earn it. But the good news about that, too, is that we don't have to do anything to lose God's grace. It's there. You know, I sometimes think, we, we think of people like Paul or the disciples that further down the line, they had their act all together. But you know, I've been studying the book of 2 Corinthians, and you know that time when Paul is talking about having a thorn in the flesh, and we don't really know what that is. People have different theories. Some people think it was weak eyesight, so he couldn't see very well during the end. But here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12. He says three different times. That means he's pretty serious about it. It wasn't just a one-shot prayer. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. And each time he said, my grace is all you need because my power works best in weakness. You know, it's funny, I've known that verse since I was a child, but when you actually stop and think about it, my grace is all you need because my power works best in weakness. It's kind of the opposite message we get from our culture. You know, the stronger you are, the better you are. But I think for us as believers, the more we understand the fact that really without Christ, we are very weak, the more we, we learn to rest on his grace. You know, we've been diving deep into the life of David. And today we're going to take a look at what grace really looks like in the life of a man after God's own heart. Watch this. full, years weigh heavy. I come down to the sea, place of rest and solitude. It beckons me to fly free over waves and water, lifted by my Savior's grace, his forever longing daughter. In the weeks, months, and the years that followed my divorce, many people wanted to know the ins and outs of everything that had taken place in my marriage. I decided to say nothing. My pastor, my family and my closest friends knew, and that was enough for me. Magazines and newspaper reporters contacted me, offering to let me tell my side of the story. I mean, how ridiculous is that? There's such an unhealthy thirst in our culture to know all the details of someone's pain and brokenness, but life is not a spectator sport. It's to be lived in vulnerability and truth 
and community. I realized I didn't need everyone in the world to understand or approve of me. I found joy in being loved by God and resting in the protective shadow of His mercy and His grace. As David himself prayed, show me your unfailing love in wonderful ways. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. I came to realize that God's love is never based on our behavior, good or bad. It's always based on His nature. Understanding that kind of grace is the work of God in our lives, and we each walk our own journey to understanding it. Mine came in a small Episcopal church in Washington, D.C., at the lowest point of my life. I'd given my life to Christ as an 11-year-old girl and been involved in church throughout my teenage years. I never rebelled, though honestly, I think the reason was more out of fear than faith. I'd, I'd gone to seminary, then I joined Youth for Christ, and then moved to America. I'd worked with Dr. Billy Graham and had spent five years as co-host of the 700 Club. But during all that time, I don't think I really understood my own need for grace. I mean, it made sense to me that if you engage in sexual sin or you drank like a fish or stuffed things up your nose other than a Kleenex, then of course you needed grace. But I was just a scared little good girl. Why did I need grace? It was only as I sat in the back row of that Washington DC church that I began to understand finally I'd been coming to God with hands full of things I'd done for Him for years. It was an exhausting, punishing way to live. For me, grace was simply clinging to the cross. Grace had always been about Jesus, not about me. So after the end of my first marriage, I decided to just disappear for a while. Some were kind enough to offer me help to put my ministry back together and to counter any false rumors that were circulating. But I said no. It's true at one point, I longed for that. But honestly, the more I searched my heart, the more it became crystal clear that it's actually not what I wanted. I have no rights as a believer. I'm a sinner saved by grace, called to live a surrendered life. It's amazing how sometimes God will take you to a dark, confining place before you can be set free by seeing the light. I'm talking about the light of reality and accepting the consequences of how your actions impact those around you. Believe me, I've had my own experiences with this type of grace, but let me share one that happened to my son, Christian. As a child, my son was very easy to read. When I picked him up from school one day, I knew something was up. He'd gotten into trouble at school for some sort of minor vandalism he and two of his friends had caused. After a very stern lecture, the school principal told them they would be assisting the janitor for a week as punishment. Well, I asked him what he was most upset about. Well, I'm sorry I did it, he said, but I'm more sorry that I got caught. Well, after three days of assisting the janitor, Christian again came home and I could tell he was upset. Mom, I feel so bad, he began. The janitor is such a nice man, and what I did gave him a lot of work to do. Well, this time, what Christian felt sorry for wasn't the inconvenience of being caught. It was the understanding that what he did impacted the life of someone else. As we pick up King David's story, he's about to experience his own reality and light. 
David was a powerful king, and he carried out the sin he had committed mostly in secret. A couple of people knew, but they weren't going to say anything. I mean, after all, who wants to cross the king? At the end of 2 Samuel chapter 11, a servant arrives to tell David that Uriah has been killed in battle. David responds by sending word to Joab not to be discouraged, for the sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. How cold. Uriah was a trusted friend who willingly offered his life each day to defend his king. And now David was reducing him into the anonymous crowd of this one and that one. And what about his message that Joab should not be discouraged? Joab was sick because he knew the part he'd played in the murder of this innocent man. David's sin had clouded who he was. This was not the same man who sat under the stars praising God for divine protection in dark and lonely places. This king was a liar, playing damage control with his life and the lives of others. But what was really going on inside his heart? I think sometimes the louder we talk, the more trouble we're in. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, Paul tells us, Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. This is an irrefutable law in the universe, as David was about to discover. One thing I'm sure of is that if you're a person who loves God and you want to live a godly life, unconfessed sin is going to tear you up inside. In retrospect, we see this was true in David's life as he expresses in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. But in the weeks and months that followed the death of Uriah, he didn't appear to show this on the outside. When we read about the confrontation with Nathan that follows, I mean, it's natural to assume it happened almost immediately. But you know, it was almost a year before Nathan confronted David with his sin. Just imagine the scene when Nathan showed up that day. David loved Nathan and trusted him as a godly man. I'm sure David was glad to welcome this prophet. Perhaps this visit would lift some of the, the heaviness he'd been feeling for months. The story Nathan told, however, did nothing to improve his mood. There were two men in a certain town, Nathan began. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owed nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised up that little lamb. It grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. Well, one day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. I can picture David leaning in and listening as Nathan begins to tell a story. As the tale unfolds, he grows furious. How could anyone do such a brutal, cold-blooded thing? David proclaims a harsh sentence on the thief and even says he deserves to die, not knowing he's actually passing sentence on himself. Then four small words from Nathan dispel the darkness David has used to cover up his sin. You are that man. 
Isn't it interesting how much easier it is to see the sin in someone else's life than our own? This story has really helped me at times. Whenever I'm thinking of doing something but I have a niggling feeling it might not be right, I use this lesson from Nathan. And I imagine what I would think if someone told me that someone else had done it. This simple practice is very powerful. God's timing also fascinates me. He didn't send Nathan the morning after David slept with Bathsheba or even after Uriah's death. He didn't send him when David married her. No, God waited. Why would he do that? I believe it's the mercy of God that lets us feel the impact of our sin. Until we fully understand the weight of our sin, we can't truly celebrate the beauty of our costly redemption through God's grace. David's heart had become hardened. According to Judaic law, anyone who stole from someone else had to return it fourfold. The law didn't allow for killing the thief. David seemed to be trying to clear his own conscience by punishing someone else. The same is true of us when we hold on to sin, we become judgmental of others. It's only when we have tasted grace that we can share it with another sinner. Well, Nathan wasn't finished with David. He was there on a divine mission, delivering every word that God would speak to the king. He first reminded David of the lavish kindness and faithfulness God had shown to him. The Lord had anointed him king, delivered him from Saul, and given him everything he had. Then Nathan moves to the drastic consequences of David's sin. The sword shall never depart from your house. Wow, what a harsh prophecy that must have been to hear. Terrifying too. But David responds by saying, I have sinned against the Lord. That's it. That's his whole response. No rationalizing or trying to blame anyone else. He doesn't even say, I've sinned against Uriah or Bathsheba or Joab or even any of his own wives. David understands the one he has greatly sinned against is the Lord. I mean, has he wronged others? Absolutely. But God feels the weight of his sin most acutely. Well, contrast that with King Saul's response when the prophet Samuel confronted him with the fact that he disobeyed a direct command from the Lord. God had told Saul to completely destroy Israel's enemy, the Amalekites. But Saul had decided to spare the king and keep some of the best sheep, goats, and cattle for himself. When faced with his sin, Saul tried to justify his actions and even attempt to spiritualize his disobedience I was gonna offer them as a sacrifice to God, he says. Well, Samuel responds, what is more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? God's not interested in religious excuses or blame shifting. He's solely interested in our heart and its responsiveness to his voice. There's such grace here for you and me Grace is amazing, as the song goes, but it doesn't erase the effects of our deliberate sin. There were serious consequences for David's sin. The baby born to David and Bathsheba would die. Yet after the tears of their loss dried, redemption bloomed with the birth of Solomon. 
David's son would ultimately become the king's successor, the one to build a stunning temple and become the wisest king to ever rule. Solomon would later write, people who conceal their sins will not prosper, but if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. Where do you think he absorbed that lesson? Don't you think it's likely that he learned it from his father? Because that's the other great gift that comes out of a night of poor choices. We have real hope and wisdom to offer to those who come after us. the life of Solomon is such a testimony to the grace of God because you remember, you know, David and Bathsheba um, had an affair. Um, she got pregnant. A lot of really bad things happened and they lost that baby. And you'd be tempted to think, you know what, they really blew it. But then do you remember that after they got married that, that Bathsheba became pregnant again? And who did she give birth to? She gave birth to Solomon, the wisest man. God's mercy isn't just for when you get it all right. God's mercy is for when you get it all wrong. That really is what grace is all about. And so um, one of the things we'd like to do is that we have such a heart for children around the world who haven't even heard of the grace and mercy of God because what they're living with is so desperate. So we want to be able to meet the needs they have at the moment so that then we can tell them about the good news of the gospel. And so um, for any gift that you send us in today, I want to send you this teaching series, um, The Longing in Me. I had... It was an amazing experience recording this. I felt such a sense of God's presence and it will be our gift to you. But I think the more deeply you drink of the grace of God yourself, the more that you want to extend that to other people. You know, I've had the privilege through working here at Life Today of going to some of the places where there's such desperate need. And I love that the gospel doesn't just bring truth. The gospel also brings clean water the gospel brings food. The gospel brings shoes for little feet. The gospel brings surgeries to those who are hurting. And then when those immediate needs have been met, the gospel brings the even bigger gift. And that is the gift that is Christ Jesus, our Lord. So I want to show you a piece that I, I believe will really help you understand how you and I right now can make a big, big difference in the lives of some people who really need it. Watch this. You know, Betty, all these people have wondered why we're here, how are you? And we have told them through translators that we're here because we love them and because we want to give them a better life. We came in the name of the Lord Jesus, but we didn't just come to talk about God's love. We came to share it and demonstrate it. healing here in Central America by a contaminated water source, and we, we love to give water wells. But we found out something else. Uh, because of contaminated water, and even contaminated contaminations and, and, 
and problems in the soil, children get uh, little cuts in their feet and they pick up hookworms. And as I understand it, that ultimately gets into their intestines and is a horrible sickness. But it, it's a disease that not only brings incredible pain and discomfort, but in so many instances, death. I'm sitting here with Berta and her eight children that she loves very, very much. And she would do anything to take care of them health-wise. And she's just one example of one family that needs our help. And we want to be able to put some shoes on the feet of these children, precious feet. Jesus loves these children all over the world. And so as this example, as she sits here with her children, just visualize, just picture families, children all over the world that need to have shoes on their little feet. So I hope you will join with us. This is a great opportunity to bless these families that just barely get by from day to day. Please join with us. It's amazing that a small gift can make such a huge difference. I've had the privilege of putting these little shoes on feet. And you should see, I mean, you saw there the children with Betty and James. They've never had shoes before. And the great thing about these is that they're waterproof too. So when the kids have to go down and draw water, they can wear these in the water. And it prevents them from horrible diseases. Hookworm is a terrible thing. When it gets into a child's intestine, basically it stops all protein from being able to be absorbed into the system. So the children become very, very weak and susceptible to terrible illnesses. Now here's our goal. It's 150,000 children, 150,000 children. And we can do this. This is our last week. So I really want you to help me. If you send in $36, do you know that provides shoes for 10 children? We managed to get the price so far down, 180, 50 children. But the other thing we're doing um, at this time is that sometimes a child can't smile because of cleft palate, cleft lip. We've seen what that looks like and it's devastating to children. Sometimes a child can grow up in a village in Africa and not actually really know that they're different. Um, and uh, you know, we do some things sometimes with the best heart and it's hard. You know, I've been over there and I'll take a little photo on my phone and I'll turn and I'll show it to kids and they'll be like, yay! And when you do that to a little one who has cleft palate, it's devastating because sometimes they see for the first time how different they look. So what we are also gonna do, it's gonna be the best Christmas ever, is for $500, you can provide a child with that surgery. $500, you would never be able to do that surgery here for that price. But we have some amazing people, wonderful doctors who say, hey, listen, we'll do it. So Barry and I, my husband and I, we've decided that will be our Christmas gift to each other. Trust me, I do not need one more sweater. But to be able to say, you know what, we can provide a surgery that will change the life of a child. So for any gift that you send in at all, we're gonna send you this darling little shoe. It might look like it's glass, but it's actually quite heavy. And you can put that on your tree. Now for $180 or more, we're gonna send you this lovely little Christmas tree of shoes. These are all the shoes we've had throughout the, all the years. They're just absolutely darling. And you can put that on your tree. And I would really encourage you, do this as a family. You know, maybe you and your husband, you and your wife usually sit and write the checks. Include your kids in this. Maybe ask them, hey babe, you wanna, you wanna throw in a dollar of your allowance? 
Wouldn't, don't you think this Christmas would be so much better if every single one of us as a believer did something? You might not be able to do $500. You might only be able to do $36. Or maybe you can get together with your neighbors and say, hey, you want to get in together? But if every single one of us did something, it'll change the world. So please go to lifetoday.org. Do it now. Poverty is a killer. And because of it, children needlessly suffer, not only from a lack of food and clean water, but also from a lack of things we take for granted, such as a healthy smile or a simple pair of shoes. For most of these children, they've never owned a new pair of shoes. And while that may seem minor in the light of all their needs, walking with bare feet puts them at risk of life-threatening infections that could lead to crippling consequences, disease, and even death. By responding today, you can help life immediately secure and begin shipping Christmas shoes to 150,000 children around the world, just in time for the holidays. Your gift of $36 will help provide 10 pairs of shoes. A gift of $72 will help provide 20 pair. And a gift of $180 will help provide 50 pairs of Christmas shoes for children in need. With your gift of any amount, be sure to request this beautifully crafted blue metal shoe ornament, a treasure to place on your tree each holiday season. With your gift of $180 or more, you may also request this keepsake boxed set of Life's Christmas Shoe Ornaments. Finally, please consider a gift of $1,000 or more to help provide over 275 pairs of shoes or two children with corrective cleft palate surgeries, and you may request our Majesty Bronze Sculpture. This is the last week. Please call, write, or make your gift online. This is just one of millions of children all around the world in desperate need of a simple pair of shoes. I am so privileged to be a part of Life Outreach, who not only brings water for life, rescue for life, uh, food programs, but also shoes shoes to children who desperately need them to protect their little feet from cuts, from tears, from even waterborne illness that may get into the cut and affect it. Gosh, we could go on and on and on to the end result being that they could lose their very feet. Please, why don't you join me today? Go to your phone or go online and do whatever you can to make a difference, just one child at a time, one pair of shoes at a time. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We really all can do something, don't you think? We'd love to send you this little um, shoe for any gift at all. Um, for any gift, we're gonna send you the Longing and Me um, teaching tape. And if you want to go to thelongingandme.com, uh, you'll find out a lot more. We have a study guide, all sorts of things. But please, let's do something. So often Christmas is a time, and I know we're a little bit early, but we have to be able to get all these gifts in so that we can get these gifts to kids for Christmas. I want to have this Christmas to be different for my family, because it's not about us getting things, it's about us receiving the gift of Christ, and because of that, because of His grace, we can reach out and touch the lives of others. So please, this is our last week. I really want to see these little ones running around with these shoes on their feet, smiles on their faces. It'll be an amazing Christmas. And remember, if you need us, you need some help, we're here for you, always. Thank you, God bless you. See you next time on Wednesdays in the Word.
there's deep healing and communion in the broken places where we can tear off the mats and be real with one another. Ann Voskamp and Sheila Walsh, tomorrow. Life Today is made possible by the supporters of Life Outreach International. Your gift will be used exclusively for the exempt purposes of life. The ministry features specific outreaches as examples of the programs it supports and conducts. Gifts are considered to be without restriction as to use unless explicitly stipulated by the donor. The ministry is a member of the ECFA.